Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, it's episode 100, and we're going to talk about toilets. Yes, the truth about toilets. We're also going to revisit everybody's favorite insulation topic, Reflectix. And we'll have a tale from the road involving a tractor and a lot of bees and a product review of some interesting shades that you can get for your van. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 100. And yeah, actually, I'm using the old format this time. <laughs> Let me explain very briefly for those of you who care about minutia. I realized that if I made episode 100 the first episode of the new format, it was going to screw up this idea of having seasons because this is a zero zero episode and the first episode of a new season needs to be zero one it may seem trivial and silly but it's how my brain works so this one is going to be the same as all the other episodes and then the next episode which will be coming not next week but the following week i'm taking thanksgiving off that one will be the first new episode of the new format. And I do have some really good new music to share with you there, so I'm kind of excited about that. I am going to a van meetup. I've never done this before. Ever since I started this podcast, I've either been busy or we've had this stupid pandemic thing, which we still have, and I'm mindful of that. But I've decided that I'm doing this, and I'm going to a van life meetup, and I'm basically inviting you on behalf of the hosts. This is a very small meetup. It's being organized by people who've never done it before. It is completely low-key. It's just basically going to be a convoy drive over some pretty territory and then some hanging out at a campground that is reserved just for us. All this is going to happen just north of San Antonio, Texas on December 11th, 12th, and 13th. And the plan is that we're all going to meet up the first day and do a famous drive called the Devil's Backbone, which I don't know what that is, but I have been assured that it is a fairly short trip and all paved roads, so it should be suitable for any vehicle. They're asking for $35 for the weekend. It's just a donation to help cover the cost of reserving the campsite for us. It comes with nothing. You get a space to camp and you bring your van and that's it. You're responsible for your own food, your own waste, and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if there are any services there, but I wouldn't plan on it. I'm not organizing this event. They're expecting maybe 20 to 30 people there. Not a huge deal. The campground looks very nice. They have goats and chickens and cows, and the host has a wonderful reputation. I'm going, and heck, if you wanted to, you could too. This is being organized on Facebook. I'll have a link in the show notes, but I know not everyone uses Facebook, so if you have any questions, you can contact me directly at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. I hope to see you there. And if I don't see you there, I hope to see you at another van meet. If you know of a van meet going on in the next year or so, let me know. I'm going to try to get to as many as possible because I need to break out of my own bubble a little bit and see more in person what other people are up to out there. So please invite me to whatever there is going on. <laughs> Thank you. I did a bit of research into composting toilets and I... <laughs> I found something that nobody talks about, but it's actually pretty obvious, and that is composting toilets don't compost anything. <laughs> there is no compost going on here. That is not a part of the process. A composting toilet generally is a toilet that, when you sit on it, separates solids 
and liquids. And the solids are mixed with some sort of a medium like sawdust or cocoa fibers or something like that. And then they sit there, usually with some sort of a fan. And the fan serves two purposes. It takes away odors and it also dries it out. Because the idea is you want to keep those solids as dry as possible. And the liquids go into a tank that you empty fairly regularly. That's how it works. Many people love it. It's a system that absolutely can work for vans. But the thing that I was wondering about is, what do you do with those solids? Now, the name composting toilet leads you to believe that, well, you've just got composted material there. You've basically got dirt or soil. So you can then just, you know, sprinkle it around in the woods or trees. I mean, it's just dirt, right? It's healthy. It's fertilizer. It's good stuff. But that's not at all true. Let's get this very clear here. Composting toilets do not produce compost. They don't. The composting process of human waste takes about a year. And I really don't think anyone's keeping their stuff around that long in the van. What the composting toilet does, the way they were designed, which wasn't for vans, it was for off-grid houses, is it starts the composting process. It's the start of it. Once you separate the liquids from the solids and you mix those solids with the medium, you have started the process. When that container is full, you're supposed to take the material and add it to a composting bin or a compost bin. I know I keep pronouncing the word differently. It's kind of annoying English. Then it sits there and is either turned over by worms or you turn it over or whatever, but it basically sits there for a year before it can be used as soil. That's how it's supposed to work. But I don't think there's that many folks in vans set up like that. I mean, are you always going to drive to this bin that you use to empty it out? No. So, in fact, I think what most people do is, well, either A, they're dumping it in the woods, which is absolutely not the thing to do. That is bad. Or B, they're bagging it and throwing it away, which is absolutely fine. But then I have to ask the question, why are you bothering with all this? Why don't you just use the bag method? Because ultimately, if you are going to end up with a bag of waste that you're throwing into the trash, what's wrong with a Home Depot bucket that costs five bucks? Why spend a thousand dollars on an airhead or whatever? So that's the conundrum I find myself in regarding composting toilets. Now, to be fair, I've never had one. I've never even used one. I've done plenty of research on them. But I am kind of curious as to what the appeal is, other than the fact that they actually can work well in vans. If you're fine with emptying out that pee bottle once a day or once every other day, and then emptying out the solids bin about a week or two weeks, depending on usage, and you put it in a bag and you throw it in the trash, that is totally fine. That works great. But you can pretty much do the same thing with a Home Depot bucket and a decent quality trash bag. You basically take care of the liquids in the traditional Gatorade bottle or whatever, and then you take care of the solids, wrap it up and throw it in the trash. Some people are grossed out by the idea of throwing human waste in the trash, but not only do diapers go in the trash with great regularity, Dog waste is also a thing we throw in the trash, and ultimately we all must realize that the trash is filled with feces. <laughs> so this isn't anything new.
that out of the way, if you decide you want to use a composting toilet for whatever reason, that's great. Just understand that you are not creating compost. There is nothing about a composting toilet that is good for the environment or anything like that. It just isn't. It can be a convenient way to have a toilet in your van that you will have relatively few problems with. Okay, let's say that you are in somewhat of a different place. Let's say that you're someone that likes the convenience of having a specific place to store waste that you don't have to deal with every day, but you don't want to spend all the money of a composting toilet, and you know, you think those maybe those chemical camping toilets might be the solution. Well, those I'm very familiar with. I've had several of them, and they actually can work great. What people usually object to with them is the chemical part. You know, they're, they're called chemical toilets. And traditionally, you would buy chemicals that kind of preserve the waste. The idea was to disinfect the waste. And the thing they used most of the time for that was formalin, also known as formaldehyde, which can cause problems. Uh, it's one of these chemicals that even though your body produces it naturally in large quantities, it can be dangerous. Modern day versions of the chemicals that you add to the tank do not contain formalin, and they also don't necessarily work all that well. Plus, they're an ongoing expense. Plus, you now need a water supply for these toilets, so you are using fresh water as well. It doesn't have to be drinkable fresh water, and as I've stated in many other podcasts, you can use washer fluid in the winter because it won't freeze, but you still need this other liquid supply. And personally, I do think cassette toilets are pretty convenient. And the reason is that it's actually not that hard to get rid of the waste. I've heard horror stories of people driving around looking for a dump station to get rid of the contents, but you, you don't have to. You can actually use any toilet. And I know there's debate about this that because people think that the chemicals in there make it so that you can't flush them down the toilet. But the chemicals that we have these days are absolutely fine to flush down a toilet. I mean, think about what you clean a toilet with. It's acid. It's it's hydrochloric acid. It's It's scary stuff. And that can go down the pipes just fine. Same with this. You can also use outhouses. You can use porta-potties. Let me put it this way. I have never had a problem finding a place to empty my cassette toilet. There are many, many opportunities. So that really isn't an issue. So that's the three basic options we have here. We have the plain old bucket in a bag, which a lot of people use, and I actually think given the price and the flexibility and the ease of disposal, I think is an option people should definitely consider. There's nothing attractive about it at all, but geez, it works. There's the composting toilet, which is expensive and fancy, and then there are the chemical toilets, and they all have their pros and cons. Right now in my van, I have the bucket. And I've used it exactly once because the truth is the way I camp, I don't really have a hard time finding public toilets, which is what I use most of the time. In fact, a lot of people, that's all they use. Now, there are other ways, there are other fancy toilets. Some of them have space baggies, some of them incinerate, some people just use a shovel in the woods, all those things are fine. But I wanted to talk about some kind of toilet myths here. And the biggest one was that composting toilets actually compost waste. They don't. That's not how it works. So if you were thinking of getting one for that reason, that's not a reason. Tech Talk. Let's revisit Reflectix. Reflectix is this wonder insulation. It's that aluminized bubble wrap that you can wrap your van in, and it's really easy, and it doesn't take up very much space. And if you read the packaging, holy cow, it'll be R25. And it, it, okay. 
The reality is Reflectix really isn't insulation. Reflectix is a radiant barrier and it's designed to be put in attics, places where you can have a big gap between the wall and the stuff. The idea is that the sun hits a wall, the heat goes from being convective heat to radiant heat, and this barrier blocks radiant heat. That's why Reflectix is so great for windows, because it will reflect the heat back out the window. But that doesn't work if it touches metal. If it touches metal, the heat simply heats up the Reflectix, and then the Reflectix radiates the heat into your space. So if you're one of the folks who thought you would just do your whole van with Reflectix, well, it isn't very good insulation. But is it enough? So this is the tricky thing. Everything I just said is true. Reflectix is not great insulation, and if it touches metal, it loses most of its properties. In fact, what it does is it loses all of its radiant heat blocking properties. But it does insulate just a little bit, and it insulates actually enough to do a very important thing that we insulate for, which is to prevent condensation. If you have a van and you wrap the inside with Reflectix, you will immediately notice a whole lot less condensation because that Reflectix will actually create a barrier between the very cold metal and the warm, moist air inside that is enough to prevent condensation. And that's one of the main roles of insulation. We tend to talk about insulation as being to keep the inside cool or warm, which it certainly is. But some people, the real problem is condensation. And Yes, it's true. Reflectix can help with condensation. And when you consider all the advantages that Reflectix has regarding ease of insulation, no off-gassing or fibers or splinters or any of that stuff, and how thin it is where it doesn't take up all that much space, there are definitely builds where Reflectix might be the answer. Please don't think I'm saying that Reflectix is a great insulation. It isn't. If you're going to a cold climate and you want to keep the inside of your van warm, Reflectix is not a great answer. But if you're traveling and you're able to keep the temperature inside your van where you want it, your concern is condensation, Reflectix can actually be an answer. I, I kind of feel dirty saying that. And the reason I have revisited Reflectix is because... My ambulance, professionally built, has Reflectix as its insulation. That's what's behind all the walls. I kind of wonder why they did that, because behind the walls of my ambulance, there's tons of space. I mean, they could have put anything back there. They chose Reflectix, and I suspect it was for ease of use. And again, ambulances are a bit different because they are always running. So they always had a virtually endless supply of air conditioning and heat. So their insulation needs aren't quite the same as what we need for camper vans. I mean, nobody was sleeping in there overnight with the engine off. That just didn't happen. So yes, this is a contentious topic. It is impossible to say the word Reflectix without somebody disagreeing with you. But I do want to bring up this one point that... In some cases, Reflectix can be exactly the right material to solve the problem you have. Tales from the Road So back in the 80s, I was basically a farmer. <laughs> I wasn't a normal farmer. I was uh, My job title actually was Lab Tech 2. And I was working at a company that did all kinds of experimental stuff. And, and my job was to manage the farm that grew tomatoes. 
farm actually grew a whole bunch of things. I was only responsible for the tomato part. And we were trying to grow tomatoes that basically had more sugar in them because that would allow for the production of tomato paste to cost less money. That's the very briefest version of that. So we were breeding tomatoes. So I had four acres that I had to manage. And if those of you are familiar with Salt Lake City, this was up in Research Park, which today is this giant technology park filled with buildings. But back in the 80s, there were only a few buildings and there were big open fields. And I was in one of those fields. My building was 417 Wakara Way. And across the parking lot from that, there was this open field that is now filled with building. In fact, I went and visited and I couldn't even find the field. I've got lots of stories from working on this field, but today I want to tell you just one. I was uh, deep plowing the field. Uh, This is something you would do either at the beginning of the season or the end of the season, which is you'd put a big plow on the back of the tractor and you would basically just make a mess of the field. Most of the year, you're trying to smooth the field and make it even. But when you're doing deep plowing, you're just trying to dig stuff up and get down as deep as you can and kind of mix up the soil. And that's what I was doing. It was not really very precise work, but you typically would do it in rows just to make sure that you got everything. As I recall, this was in the fall, and I was out there plowing the field, and we had decided to do it on diagonals this time. Instead of going up and down, we we went across the field in diagonals to really mix the soil up. And I was about halfway through listening to my Walkman, because that's what era this was, and, you know, a bee flew into the cab. Now, I was driving a, a Ford tractor, I think it was a Ford 1900, it, it didn't have an enclosed cab. It just had kind of a roll cage. But this bee flew by and, uh, you know, big deal. I'm outside working on the farm. A bee is not the biggest deal. But then there was another bee and then three bees and then seven bees and then 50 bees. And suddenly I was completely surrounded by bees. It was raining bees sideways. And I had never encountered anything like this before. I did not grow up in Utah. Maybe this happens all the time. I don't know. But all I do know is that I'm on this tractor in the middle of all these bees. And for all I know, they're very angry at me. So what do I do? Well, if you've ever driven a tractor and you're plowing, one thing you know is that these are not nimble vehicles. In order to stop the tractor and stop plowing, I would have to stop the tractor raise the plow with the hydraulic lift, turn the tractor off, and then set the brake. And that would have been the prudent thing to do. But when you're in the middle of raining bees, well, sometimes you don't do the rational thing. So I did the irrational thing, and I just jumped the heck off that tractor and hightailed it away from the bees, and I left the tractor running. In fact, it just kept on plowing without me. This seems to be a habit I have. But I just ran as fast as I could down the field towards nothing, hoping that the bees wouldn't follow me. And I looked back and sure enough, the bees didn't follow me. In fact, they didn't care I was there at all. The bees were doing a beeline and I just happened to drive through it with the tractor. I found out later that what I was witnessing was a swarm of bees. And that's a technical term for bees basically moving their nest from one place to another. This was the end of the season, and what was happening was the queen was moving from whatever nest they'd been in all summer to another nest. And when they do that, the bees are completely not aggressive. Those bees did not care that I was in their way. They were just flying by me. It was me that just panicked for no reason. In reality, I could have just kept plowing the field, and they wouldn't have bothered me. 
the bees passed, I ran and caught up with the tractor. And so I thought, well, okay, that was an experience. I'm all done with bees on this job. I mean, what other weird bee story could I have related to this job? And then our senior scientist said, well, we're going to start doing some work with Arabidopsis. Arabidopsis is a plant that is also called mousecress, and it is often referred to as the fruit fly of the plant world because it's often used in research. And the reason is, and same with fruit flies, is that it has a very small genome. That means it has very few genes, which makes them easy to manipulate, and it makes it easier for you to try out different things and see what happens. And since we were working with plants, it made sense to work with mousecress. But there's a problem with mousecress, and that is it has very small flowers. So one things we did all the time was we force pollinated flowers, which is a sort of plant rape. Um, I did horrible things with these plants. It's a good thing they're not sentient or I'd be in serious trouble. But with the mouse cress, it was so hard to pollinate them that we had to come up with a way to do it. And somebody said, why don't we use bee butts? And I was like, what? What are we talking about here? Well, it turns out that for years, people have been forcibly pollinating plants with bee butts. That is the abdomens of bees that have been cut off of the bee and glued onto a toothpick. Okay, you may have figured out the reason for this, and that is that bee butts are very good at collecting pollen. Now, this was very delicate work, and I was mostly doing tractor repair. I was not the delicate work guy on this project. So it was decided that I would build the bee butts, I would make them, and somebody else would actually do the pollinating. And I was like completely fine with this. There's an obvious question. Where does one acquire a large quantity of bee butts? And uh, so we called around to a local beehive guy, you know, a guy who owned beehives, and said, uh, hey, we need like a thousand dead bees. And there was a pause, and he said, uh, well, I have that. I have that every day. And uh, we made an arrangement, and basically the guy, for 10 bucks, brought us a paper shopping bag filled with dead bees. I'm like, okay, this is a strange transaction. He thought we were strange. We thought he was a little strange. But at the end of the transaction, I had a fairly heavy bag of dead bees. Now, this was at the end of the day he showed up, and I didn't have time to do much with these bees, so I just put the bag on my desk. The next morning, I come in, and I was the first one there that day, and the lab had this weird sound, and I realized it was coming from the area of my desk, and that sound was a paper bag filled with very angry bees, because there's a difference between being dead and being mostly dead. These bees were bees that he had swept up off the floor around his beehives because bees will kind of clean up their hives and any dead or sick bees they find in the hive get cast out. And these were the latter. These were sick bees that now being in the warm environs of the lab had warmed up and regained enough health that uh, they were ready to get back to work. And thankfully they were enclosed in this paper bag and not flying all around the room. So I did the only prudent thing that you would do. Uh, I took the bag and I put it in the freezer, which is the only thing I could think to do. And we left it there for a good three days. And with trepidation, I took the bag out and opened it. And I was pretty sure the bees were done. And then I cut them in half. 
For hours, cut bees in half. And then using a two-part epoxy, I glued those little bee butts onto toothpicks, stuck them into a piece of foam, and had these custom-made bee butt pollination devices that I handed off to the more deft hands of my other lab mates. And, um, you know, that's enough bee stories for me. I've, I've had my lifetime fill of bee stories at this point, so I'm going to check that one off on the bucket list and move on to something else, maybe involving eels or something. Product review. YouTube is filled with people who make their own shades for their van. Now, my NV200, my first van, didn't have any windows in the back, so I didn't really have this problem. I simply bought a shade for the front windshield, and I didn't even use that very often. I didn't have to worry about preventing light and heat from going through the windows of the back of my van because there weren't any. Well, in my Sprinter, I have two, three windows. I have windows in the back doors, and I have the giant window in the slider. I mean, basically, even though they're limo-tinted, people can see in there at night, and lots of heat gets in, they need to be covered. And so I thought, well, having watched all these YouTube videos, I'll just make my own. Turns out that um, it's a little tricky to do that. I bought some Reflectix, which is the right material for this, and I tried to cut out a shape, and it just got very frustrating. The windows are an odd shape, especially the back windows. And I don't want to discourage you from making your own covers, but it is it is work, and the results will not look great unless you're kind of a crafty person, which I am not. So I decided that eh, I'm going to invest money at this problem rather than time, and I bought some shades. Now, I actually bought two different kinds. For this review, I'm just going to do the ones I bought for the back windows. So after doing a bit of research, I first realized that these things are expensive. It is not hard to spend many hundreds or even thousands of dollars on the shades for your van, depending on how many windows you have. Professionally built ones are quite expensive. But I found some that I thought were reasonably priced on Amazon, and they're made by Van Essential. One word. Van Essential, and they come in two colors, charcoal gray and cool gray, well, basically a light and dark color. And I have to say, I love these things. I'm very excited about them. They're made of sections that can fold, and they have very strong magnets that go around the side. So you take the shade and push it into the window, and the magnets adhere all around the window. And then you can fold it up in different ways to like have the window only be half open or all the way open. You can actually roll the shade up. You actually fold the shade up. And then there is a Velcro strap that holds it in place. So you don't have to take this thing off and find a storage place for it. You can actually store it on the window. Now it looks a little funny because the window shape is so weird that it's kind of this awkward things sticking out on the back door. But practically, it works great. The magnets are super, super strong. This thing is not going to fall off. And it completely blocks out all light. It fits perfectly, and no light comes through. And even though the inside is this light gray color, the outside is black. And while, yes, that's going to absorb a little bit of heat, it also means that from the outside of the van, all you see is black glass. You just see that limo tint. And if you don't have limo tint, you just have a regular glass there, people from the outside are going to think it's limo tint. They're just going to see black. Now, the important part of this, and the thing that makes this so exciting, is that it was $139.95 for two of these. So basically, my back doors are covered for $140. And while that seems super expensive, 
alternative for something that you could do with a roll of tinfoil, which is what I was doing before, it's, it adds a level of professionalism and finish and practicality to the van that I actually think it was worth the 140 bucks. And they claim it is 95% radiant heat reflective. I don't know about that, but that's what they say. Uh, and the outside material is a ripstop polyester. So very durable, very easy to clean. And it actually comes with a bag to put it in, although I don't think you would ever use it because I think you would end up just leaving it right up there. If you're looking for a solution for relatively affordable shades for your van, check out Van Essentials on Amazon. I will have a link in the show notes. And of course, you have to get the ones that match your van. They're specifically built for your van and your year. And I know they had them for mine. I can see that they have them for all kinds of sprinters. I assume they have them for Promasters and Transits as well. But you just want to make sure you get the right one. So again, that's Van Essentials Shades. I love them. I think they're a great idea. And I'll have a link in the show notes and you can hunt them down for yourself. Resource recommendation. Probably one of the strangest resource recommendations I have ever given, but I'm deadly serious about this. Go onto YouTube and type in crash compilation and you will find many, 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 many videos of dash cam footage or traffic cam footage of cars crashing into each other. And they all have like 4 million views. This is a super popular thing. Why am I telling you to do this? Because if you do this enough, you will start to see patterns. And since van life people spend a lot of time on the road, these patterns will become ingrained if you watch these videos. You'll start to see that things that are causing these accidents are distracted driving, people running red lights, and people turning into traffic not realizing there was a car coming. Those are the big three that I saw. And after watching these videos, I sort of have a sense to watch out for these things while I'm driving. Now, you can't do much about many of these things. If a car crosses the median into your lane, well, there's not a whole lot you can do. And if the person behind you is texting and doesn't hit the brakes and then slams into the back of your vehicle, you can't avoid that. But you can anticipate people doing stupid things. When I first got my driver's license, I asked my dad how long it took to actually become a decent driver. And he said five years. And at first I thought, geez, that's crazy. I mean, it was only 16 at the time. Five years seemed like an eternity. But now that I'm a mature adult, I understand that it takes that long to get a sense, uh, an intuition for how traffic flows. Watching these videos can actually help that because you will realize that if you're going through a four-way intersection and the streets on the sides of you have stop signs, but you don't, you have to be very, very careful because a lot of people will just go through those stop signs. You have to anticipate that. Watching these videos does help. Now, if you're, if you're the kind of person who doesn't like violence and doesn't want to watch gore and all that, that's fine. Most of these videos have been sanitized. It's not like you're seeing body parts flying around or anything like that. But still, they can be a little bit traumatic. So if that's not your thing, I get it. If you want to prep yourself for a lot of driving, I think these videos can actually help. So... I'm not going to have a link in the show notes, so just YouTube crash videos and you'll find them. 
Well, folks, thank you for listening to episode 100 and all the episodes before and all of the support I've received over the last two years of this podcast. This is the last episode in this format. The new format won't be very different, so don't be scared. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg and will continue to be. Until next time, remember the words of Aesop, who said, Gratitude turns what we have into enough. <laughs>